Good morning. My name is Tom Ricks. I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree Community Church, and I'd like to pose a question for all of us to consider this morning. That is this. What does a a religious decorative piece of upholstery (laughs) being ruined some 2,000 years ago uh, have to do with you and me? Uh, You hopefully had a chance uh, as the children left to read the scriptures and to absorb a little bit of the history of the veil, a little bit of the history of the curtain that was uh, built in Solomon's temple under God's direction to separate the holy place from the most holy place. Uh, And as you read in that scripture, it was a place where the high priest went, and he only went once a year uh, to offer sacrifice for the entire nation. And before the high priest went into the most holy place, uh, he put on the priestly garb. He put on uh, these beautiful flowing robes and vests and ornaments, and he wore a beautifully adorned hat. But just before he went in, one last thing was put on, and that was a rope that was tied to his ankle. And the high priest had a rope tied to his ankle, and there was a small bell at the end of the rope. And as the high priest walked into the Holy of Holies and he offered that sacrifice on behalf of the people, the folks outside, the other priests who were his assistants, knew that as long as they heard the bell, the high priest was alive. But should the bell stop ringing, they would realize that God was displeased with his people and it struck the high priest dead. (laughs) How would you like to have that job, you know? Fred, you're the high priest this year. Hey, before you go in, we're going to tie this rope to your ankle because if it doesn't work out, you know, there's not a lot of whole, job, whole lot of job security in this deal. You may, you may be struck dead. That's how serious the people of Israel took their relationship with God in the worship of God in the most holy place. It represented the place where God's Spirit dwelled with His people. And as you read at the crucifixion of Jesus, as you saw on the screen, the temple was torn in two. The, temple was, the, the uh, veil was torn in two from top to bottom. What on earth does that have to do with you and me this morning? I'd like to address that question and and look to Scripture for the answer because I believe it has a great deal to do with your life today and my life today. With that in mind, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 23. We're just going to be there for a couple of minutes, and then we're going to flip over to that last passage of Scripture that we looked at in Hebrews chapter 10. But just uh, to refresh uh, our our short-term memory, the verses we just saw on the screen out of Luke chapter uh, 23, uh, said the following, verses 44 and 45. Speaking about the experience of Jesus hanging on the cross, and it says it was now about the sixth hour, which is right around noon uh, in, in Jewish keeping of time in those days. And there was darkness over the entire land, over the whole land, until the ninth hour. So from noon till three, it was completely uh, dark. Uh, darkness hung over uh, the area of where Jesus was crucified, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Then over in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19 and reading uh, through verse 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places... By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for uh, the words that the children sang uh, right before the sermon, uh, causing us to reflect once again on the enormity of the gift of Jesus on the cross, reminding us of the price that had to be paid if we were to have forgiveness for our sins, if we were to have salvation. And Father, as we look at this, this small phrase, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, uh, something that perhaps we've skipped over or never fully understand. I pray this morning that you would help us understand what's being said there. That you would help us understand that that has tremendous application for us today, for those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus and and seek to walk with you and follow you and trust you. And for those of us who are wondering whether or not we would uh, perhaps be welcomed into the kingdom of God or whether we would be shut out because of something we don't know or something perhaps we did by mistake or, or even something knowingly that we did wasn't very good. Father, I pray that that you would show us the glorious truth that lies in these verses, that you deeply love sinners to the point that you would allow your son to give his life as a sacrifice so that the temple curtain could be torn and that we could have entrance into a relationship with you. Father, you know I can't do justice to this passage. Lord, I pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher, that your spirit and your word would open our eyes to what you want to say to us. Father, forgive me for my sins. Please don't let me stand in the way of what you want to say to everyone gathered here this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what does a, a torn curtain have to do with you and with me uh, this morning? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us the answer to that question. And he starts off his passage by saying this, we have confidence. Uh, He uses inclusive language. He's talking to fellow disciples. He's talking to fellow Christians. And he's saying, hey, everybody, don't forget that we have confidence. And so if you're you're going to pay attention at all of the text, you have to say, well, what do we have confidence in? Where's our confidence lie? Uh, Why is he so upbeat? You know, this is a pretty difficult world in which we live, and, and I have confidence sometimes, but other times my confidence can be shaken quite a bit. Uh, wherein should my confidence lie? And he says this, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us so on and so forth. The author of Hebrews says, we have confidence because we have a new pathway. And we have a new pathway into a relationship with God because of Jesus. He is the great high priest. He is the one who intercedes for us on our behalf to God and who brings God's message of reconciliation and compassion and grace into our lives. We have confidence, not because of anything we've done, but we have confidence because of Jesus. Have you ever put your confidence in somebody else? Have you ever uh, looked up to someone uh, and maybe felt that you looked up to the right person and you were rewarded for that? Or maybe you've looked up to somebody and, and they've disappointed you. I, I try to have all the heroes in my life be people who are out of history and antiquity because they're gone now and they can't mess it up. <laughs> I, try to, I try to really like people who aren't around anymore because I'm afraid of disappointment. Uh, I was reading last fall in uh, ESPN's webpage. They have a webpage solely designed for uh, golf 
fanatics, and I'm one of those crazy golf fanatics. And there was a, a person who wrote in. It was actually the letter of the month. I guess the editor goes in, and he looks at all the emails, and he picks out one that he thinks is the best. And this person was talking about their confidence back in the fall uh, for the economy to rebound and how that was going to happen. Now, why you say, why is that on ESPN's golf page? Well, I copied this person's letter, and I want to I read it to you this morning because here's a demonstration of true confidence in someone else. Person writes, am I the only one convinced that Tiger's knee injury plunged the country into an economic crisis? <laughs> the gross domestic product was up 2.8% at the time of the U.S. Open. Tiger gets hurt, and the following two quarters see Wall Street collapse and the recession officially announced. I am convinced that the economy will start to turn around in the second quarter next year, not because of the forthcoming stimulus plan from President-elect Obama, but because, Ty- because of Tiger Woods' triumphant return to the Masters. I think Tiger is going to single-handedly pull us out of the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. Signed, Nate Ricks, St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> Cindy, what have you been teaching him all of these years? <laughs> There's some theology for you. Wow. <laughs> He's not here this morning to defend himself. I was actually proud when I read that. That shows you how deep my theology is. Um, I've been trying for years to get published. He does it the first crack. Confidence. The author of Hebrews says, disciples of Jesus have confidence. Why is that so important to him? Why does he start out this application passage uh, of, of talking about how we should be following Christ with that word? Well, I think there are two reasons for that. I think you and I need that assurance. I think we need to be reminded to have confidence and to put our confidence in the right place or in the right person. I think disciples of Jesus tend to struggle with guilt. I think disciples of Jesus tend to look at their shortcomings And it leads them to a place of feeling unworthy. I hear people say all the time, I I don't feel like I can really come into a relationship with God because of the the sin in my life, because of of the things where I fall short. You know, most people's lives, whether you're a disciple of Jesus or not, most people's lives are filled with many negative messages. From early childhood on up, up, we hear things like, maybe you're not fast enough, or, or you aren't the, the prettiest one, or you are, are not the one who's the smartest. We, we, are, we are shown our deficiencies on somewhat of a regular basis. Now, not always by cruel people who are trying to put us down or, or harm us, but we live in somewhat of a competitive world. And if you're not the fastest or the brightest or the smartest, that, that tends to be pointed out. And so we tend to kind of, uh, when we think about ourselves, we tend to think of ourselves somewhat in a negative light. I was reading a a business uh, journal a few months ago, and they had interviewed several CEOs from Fortune 500 companies. And they had asked them one last question at the end of the the survey that they took, what's your biggest fear? And then they, they listed some of the things they said. But the author of the study pointed out that the majority of the answers from the CEOs were along the lines of this. My biggest fear is that everybody in my company will find out I really don't know what I'm doing. People that are running our, our biggest corporations, people who are some of the most successful people by, by the world's standards walking around on this planet are racked with self-doubt and fear and at times guilt. And I don't think being a Christian automatically takes you out of that arena. I think in many ways it simply uh, magnifies a certain aspect of our faith where we say, you know what, I, I'd like to have confidence, but when I look at my life, I'm just not quite sure that God can forgive me for the things I've done. 
And I think most disciples, or at least many disciples of Jesus, can find themselves stuck in self-reflective doubt and fear. And so I think the author of Hebrews says, I know that I have friends in Christ who, who struggle with feeling worthy, who struggle with guilt, and so I want them to know that they need to have a confidence. I want to reassure them. And so I think that's one reason why he does it, but I think there's a second. And the second reason is this. I think there, there are folks who, who see their relationship with God as kind of a quid pro quo. You know, God, I've, I've done some good things. And so I have some expectations. I've lived a pretty good life. I've I've shown up at church, and I haven't fallen asleep during the sermon. And I've even taught kids Sunday school class, and and I've done this and that, and and I've given some money. So, God, you owe me. God, I do have confidence, and my confidence is in myself. And one of the reasons why I think the author of Hebrews writes this message is to remind those of us who who find ourselves not racked with self-doubt, but racked with self-righteousness to say, wait a minute, (laughs) you better be careful. Confidence is a dangerous thing. It's an eternally dangerous thing if it is misplaced or abused. And so I think Jesus, through the, through the author of Hebrews, is saying, stop, friends, hold on just a second. Be careful here. For those of you who are struggling with, with guilt, for those of you who are frustrated by, by your lack of holiness, so to speak, or your, your inability to love God the way you think maybe you should, Jesus says, I know you haven't been good enough, but I've been good enough for you. I've done this on your behalf. My perfection is a gift to you. My sacrifice makes you right with a holy God. You have confidence. You have confidence in me, and you have confidence because of me. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened. You see, he immediately gets our eyes off of ourselves. And he gets our eyes on Jesus. He says, if you look at yourself, you're never going to get past the guilt. You're never going to get past the self-righteousness on either side of that equation. So you've got to look at Jesus because therein lies your confidence. Therein lies your hope. So to those who doubt, he says, have confidence in me and because of me. And to those who wrestle with self-righteousness, I think in, in a gentle and a kind way, but in a pretty forthright sense, he's, he's saying, don't be silly. Don't be naive. Don't let your pride blind you to the truth. You can never pay the price that must be paid for your transgressions. There is not enough time and eternity. You must have my perfection. You can't mend your own flaws. You cannot create your own pathway to God. And so the author of Hebrews calls us to have confidence, but to put our confidence in the right place. And just for a second, to go back to the gospel of Luke and to touch on Jesus' statement right before he dies. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. I think Jesus was at peace when he died. I think he was in turmoil on the cross. You remember, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abused and beaten and crucified. He suffered miserably and he suffered horribly, not only from the hands of his physical tortures, but he he suffered from the spiritual truth of being in hell for you and for me to pay for our sins. And yet when he comes to the end of his life, he's not writhing in agony. He is not clinging to his very last breath. He's not spewing curses at his enemies, but he's in a peaceful, trusting relationship with his father. Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Why was he at peace? Because he knew that the ransom for sins had been offered and had been found perfectly acceptable in the sight of his Father. 
And so the author of Hebrews says, have confidence, have confidence in that one. What does that look like? How do I know if I have confidence in Jesus? How will that work its way out in my life? Is there some kind of measuring stick? And I think the author of Hebrews gives us some very clear markers to consider this morning. Because he comes to this passage and he says three times, let us do something. And I believe that's the application. If we have confidence in Christ and through Christ and because of Christ, then let us do the following. He gives us three benchmarks to consider. The first one's in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're drawing near. We're drawing near to whom? We're drawing near to God. We're drawing near to this holy one. We're drawing near to to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He says, as you draw near to God, you need to draw near to him in this way, with a true heart and in full assurance of faith. You see, the author of Hebrews isn't calling you to some kind of religious practice. The author of Hebrews isn't saying, you know, if you just negotiate with God and do enough things, then you will be acceptable in his sight. That's not what he says. He says you have to have faith. You have to lay your works aside. You have to put your effort aside. You can't build enough um, good things, so to speak, to balance the scales. You need to let all of that go. But you need to draw near to God because you have faith. Author of Hebrews is saying it's not a religious practice. Rather, it's a relational intimacy. Draw near to God. Move into his presence. You think about this in, in relationships with human beings. When is it that you don't want to be around somebody that you really love? When something's gone wrong, right? Whether it's a spouse or whether it's a friend uh, or whether it's a child or a parent. When is it that you say, you know what, I, you know, I, I don't really care if I see so-and-so today. Maybe you had a fight the day before. Maybe you got sideways with one another. Maybe there was a misunderstanding. Maybe, maybe there was an all-out attack, one person against the other. But, but it's that brokenness in relationship. It's that that sin that tears us apart and it isolates us and it keeps us from intimacy. One of the effects of sin is isolation. When we finish this study on Luke, and I know you believe we're never going to finish this study on Luke, but we really are. In fact, we've only got about about two or three weeks left in Luke and then we're going into Genesis. So you start reading Genesis. But one of the things we're going to find out in Genesis is that sin isolates. It breaks relationships. And Jesus knows that, and the author of Hebrews understood that, and that's why he said one of the things that happens when you have confidence in Christ is that relationship gets restored. And the disciple of Jesus says, all I want to do is get close to him. (laughs) All I want to do is draw near. I know I don't get it right all the time. I know I blow it, but I want to be by him. And the author of Hebrews says, that's exactly right. With confidence, we draw near because we're clean in his sight, and we have no need to have a guilty conscience. Now, I want to beg your indulgence for a moment. I want to go down a side road because I think it's very easy to to misunderstand the difference between a guilty conscience and a repentant heart. So I just want to kind of talk about something that isn't exactly part of the sermon. Uh, A repentant heart is what we as disciples of Jesus are supposed to have. In fact, it's what everybody is supposed to have. If you don't know Jesus, this is how you come to know him. You start out by saying, you know what? I'm not worthy. (laughs) I've done a lot of stuff wrong, and I probably will continue to do things wrong in my life. You acknowledge your brokenness, and then you say, I can't fix this on my own, but my trust is in that Jesus has done that for me on the cross, and so I am sorry for my sin. I confess my sin to God. I I own it. I acknowledge it. I say, it's here. I don't try to run from it. I don't try to hide, but I bring it before the cross, and I say, this is what I have to bring. God, will you forgive me in Christ Jesus? 
It doesn't mean we ignore our sin. It means we deal with it head on. That's a repentant heart. A guilty conscience does not look outward. A guilty conscience does not look at the cross as the solution, but it can't get its eyes off itself. It's like, I am so terrible. I'm so awful. God would never love me. He would never accept me. And I'm stuck here and I can't move. Do you see the difference? The author of Hebrews isn't saying, don't repent of your sin. He's saying, repent of your sin. (laughs) Acknowledge it's there. Don't, don't, don't play games and pretend you're better than you think, you know, than you actually are. But don't live in this wallow of guilt where you think that God can't love you and doesn't want to be with you. You'll never draw near to God with a guilty conscience. You will always draw near to God with a repentant heart. So have confidence and draw near. The second admonition he gives us is in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. What are we holding fast? We're holding fast our confession. Well, what is the confession of the Christian church? Well, you can look at a lot of different places for that. You can recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. A lot of, lot of confessions have been written uh, over the years. We, from time to time, will pray a prayer of confession. We'll put it up on the screen. I've actually written some of those confessions. I mean, there's a lot of different confessions floating a lot out there. What's, what's, the, what's the one? Get it down. Boil it down. The Christian's confession is this. Jesus is Lord. I know you've heard me say that before, but I'm going to say it again this morning. We have to hold fast to that confession. We can lose everything else. We can lose our possessions. We can lose our goods. We can even lose our lives in this world, but we can't afford to lose. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord takes care of everything else. Jesus of, Jesus is Lord means he had the authority to go to... Where's our cross this morning? We don't have our cross this morning because we had all this other stuff. Jesus could go to the cross... And could pay the price for our sins. Jesus as Lord means that he has the authority to forgive your sins and to forgive my sins. Jesus as Lord means that he has the right to say to you, I have a place for you in heaven and you're going to come and you're going to be with me for all of eternity. Our confession that we must hold on to without wavering is Jesus as Lord. Steady and sure in him. Uh, maybe you remember studying Hernando Cortez, uh, the Spanish explorer. In the mid-1500s, he came to, uh, to what is now present-day Mexico, was then the Aztec Empire, and he wanted his, his, his followers to be unwavering. He wanted his, his followers to be uh, steady and sure and have their confidence in them. So when they landed, he burned all their ships. <laughs> he said, boys, there's only one way home, and it's that way. <laughs> now let's go. In a sense, that's what we have to do spiritually. We have to burn our ships the ships of self-righteousness, the ships of, of self-confidence, the ships of, of I'm going to do this on my own. And we need to embrace fully and hold fast to our confession that Jesus is Lord. And then one other thing the author of Hebrews gives us, which I think is just so outstanding, in verse 24, he says this, and let us consider, let us think about, let us contemplate would be another way to say this. Give this some serious attention, okay? This is not, you know, think about it and forget about it, but really sit down and consider, okay? How to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. The author of Hebrews says, if you're going to have confidence in Jesus, one of the things that will show itself to be true is your care for other people. 
that you will reflect the heart of Jesus in the way you live with others. That the people within your sphere of influence, wherever that happens to be, your office, your carpool, your classroom, the hallways of your high school or your middle school, wherever you find yourself, okay, your community will be impacted by your confidence in Christ. How does that happen? It happens in a couple of different ways. But the heart and soul of this message is that the responsibility for others' well-being reflects the heart of Jesus. When I love you well, it means that I'm reflecting how Jesus cares for you and loves you and wants to nurture you in your relationship with him. I've said this so many times, you're probably, you know, it's ad nauseum almost, you're probably sick of it, but Luke 19.10, the theme verse, what did Jesus come to do? The Son of Man came to seek and save who? The lost, right? You guys got that, that verse memorized. That's outstanding. 18 months and we're, we're humming right along. It reflects the heart of one who came to seek and save. The heart of one who said, I'm not going to be worried about, about my care, about my comfort, about my ease. He left his throne in heaven and he came to find you. And he came to find me wandering in the darkness, broken and alone, separated from him by our sin from all of eternity. He said, that person right there is worth me going to the cross and dying so that they can have life. And then he calls those of us who become his disciples to reflect that graciousness, to have an outward focus, to have a mindset that nurtures others. How does it work out? He says, well, let's consider how to stir one another up, one another up to love and good deeds. When's the last time you motivated somebody else to live a Christ-centered, gracious life? When's the last time your life helped someone else follow Jesus better? When's the last time your impact on someone had a direct impact on another person whom they cared for? That's what the author of Hebrews says will happen. When we have confidence in Jesus, people will see that confidence. They'll be drawn to that confidence. And one one of the effects of that will be that we then go and care for one another well. Am I thinking about that? If I have confidence in Christ, I will. And then the last one, which I really love, he says this, and let us consider what? How to encourage one another. How to encourage one another. How to literally give another person courage. The music that we used for that when you were reading the verses that came up, that music is from Gladiator. I don't know if you recognize it or have that soundtrack or not. I see some people going, yeah, now I was trying to figure out where that was from. The reason we picked Gladiator is because that's who Jesus was for us. And the author of Hebrews calls Jesus the gladiator of our faith. He calls, us the, he calls him the champion of our faith. So I have this image of Russell Crowe's Jesus, which is kind of a weird kind of thing going on in, in your mind. But he's, but he's there leading his men. And those men did great things because they were encouraged. They were given courage by uh, Russell Crowe's character in that movie. And Jesus says, when you have confidence in me, that's going to rub off. And you're going to actually be able to give that confidence, give that courage to another. And you need to set your mind to that. How does your life impact someone else so that they may be struggling greatly in their faith? They may be saying, I just don't even know if I can believe anymore, but your life and your confidence in Christ allows them to go on for another day. We had had kind of a tough week in our families. A lot of you may know we uh, had to put dad in a nursing home this week. And that was a real struggle for us. And we started out at the hospital early in the week and ended up in a nursing home later on the week. And by Friday morning, I was, I was pretty well spent. I was, I was pretty well worn out emotionally and, and spiritually. And I called my buddy, Chuck Nieder, on the phone, who's been my mentor for, you know, 20, 
six years now, I guess he comes and preaches every once in a while. A lot of you have met him. And I said, Chuck, I'm just, I'm, I, I'm, the gas tank's empty, buddy. <laughs> I got nothing right now, and I just need to talk to you. I, you know, I just need to hear your voice and share some thoughts with me. And, you know, he didn't say anything. Well, I was like, oh, my gosh, I got to pull the car over and write this down. You know, I was going from Kirkwood High School to someplace else. It was probably about a six-minute conversation. And um, uh, in that time, in that few minutes, he gave me courage. He just reminded me of a couple things I needed to know. He just said, you know, don't forget this. Remember that God loves you. Remember that you have an opportunity to care, you know, care for your dad and so on and so forth. In those few minutes, he lived out the gospel, and he gave me courage. Friends, this is, this is a torn piece of upholstery you never want mended, <laughs> okay? You want this, this curtain to stay torn because that tearing represents that our sin is gone. It's been wiped clean. We're no longer considered unworthy. We're no longer need to be separated by a curtain from a holy God, but rather we are welcomed. And the separation and the isolation is gone. They've been replaced with friendship and with intimacy. So have confidence. Let's pray.